And we are back. Thank you so much for sticking with us. And now is my favorite, uh, my favorite part of the program here, um, where I don't just have to talk to myself into the into the radio, the blackness of radio. Uh, I get to have our guest on, and we've had him on before. Um, we are joined today by Jim Carroll, who's a senior vice president, portfolio manager at Toroso Investments. And uh, he is a self-described vixologist. He's a guy that I bother via Twitter uh, uh, through, through, and he's kind enough to answer through direct messages whenever I've got a quandary about volatility. Because Jim is one of the guys, one of the few people I know that really has a practical uh, and experienced and thorough understanding of the VIX. The VIX is sort of like... I'm trying to think of a comparison. Uh, The VIX is kind of one of those things that everybody loves to talk about and discuss, and almost nobody really knows what they're talking about. Um, And and Jim's actually done the work. So, Jim, I I can't thank you enough for being on today, and great to have you with us again. Zach, it's it's always nice to chat with you, and I'm happy to try to fill in the blanks. It seems like... uh, uh, there's ever more confusion about what's going on in the volatility landscape these days. So happy to uh, answer questions and maybe illuminate a few things for you and your audience. Oh, man. Well, I am looking forward to it, sir, because questions are what I have. Answers are not. Um, and so hope, hoping you can fill that. But before we get into that, you, you are also a portfolio manager, Jim. What kind of kind of explain to us what portfolio you manage there at Toroso and, and, and what you focus on? So my mandate uh, is to work with a group of clients that I've collected over the years. Um, So I'm not running a portfolio or a fund per se, you know, unlike my colleague, Michael Guyad, who's uh, even more famous on Twitter. Um, And, you know, one side of our shop is really very much a portfolio management operation. Um, for my clients, you can look at it as more or less a traditional wealth advisory relationship, uh, but I do come to it with some specific ideas about portfolio construction and different strategies that I think can be useful in helping clients meet their objectives. And a lot of what I do has a tactical element to it. Uh, I am not a firm believer in the efficient market hypothesis. I'm not a firm believer in buy and hold forever. Uh, I think for some people, if you start young enough and you close your eyes to bear markets, uh, you can come out on the other side in great shape, you know, with a long enough time horizon and sufficient risk tolerance. But I find that a lot of people who have accumulated a decent amount of wealth uh, are are more interested in... um, Limiting downside participation, um, you know, and and taking some of the bumps out of the return stream. So a fair amount of what I do is tactical. It's on different time frames. Uh, we can do a deeper dive if you want, but think of it as tactical asset allocation, uh, some of which is relatively twitchy short term. Uh, some of which is relatively slower moving and more tax efficient. Uh, And as part of that, I do, uh, in limited circumstances, um, use some of the volatility instruments to express either a long or short view on where volatility might be going. So 
<clears throat> would it be fair to characterize you as a as as a risk manager? Well, I like to think that that is a big chunk of my job is to really assess risks in the marketplace and have systems in place that that really are rules based and that will do it for me. Um, one of the strategies that I run for clients uh, has spent most of 2022 on the sidelines. Mm. Uh, and, you know, people think, geez, you know, holding cash is losing to inflation. Um, well, you know, a- as a tactical deployment of assets, uh, as opposed to a strategic deployment or, or just sort of uh, a blind stick your head in the ground <laughs> approach, holding cash in an inflationary environment doesn't make a lot of sense. But from a tactical perspective, uh, it's it's been a useful place to be relative to being down pick a number in equities or down pick a number in fixed income for that matter. You know, as you know, this has been a year where there really haven't been too many places to hide and uh, and cash as a tactical asset has had its advantages. Yeah, I, I was going to say people don't want to be in cash in a inflationary environment, but you know, go ask a bondholder if they'd have preferred to be in cash. Right. Um, right. And I think I think that's greatly misunderstood. Um, you know, you look at this year and and pretty much the only way you've hung in there. I mean, other than some energy stocks or some one off names here or there, it's been to be, you know, either in cash or short. Right. Like that's exactly. that's it. Um, OK, so so moving on a little bit to volatility and and, and I, I want to first run. Um, I, I have my own understanding of it, but I want to run by you uh, my explanation of clients uh, or, or the explanation I give clients when we're discussing volatility. And hopefully you can you can critique my uh, my description a little bit and maybe add to it and, and, and help illuminate it. But um, one of the ways I've tried to describe it to our clients and our listeners is that think of it as the price of insurance. Right. Um, meaning when when the, when the VIX goes up or volatility increases, insurance is more expensive. And when things are very relaxed and serene and the VIX is lower. Right. And there's not as many risks on the horizon as you'd expect. Insurance is less expensive. Is, is, that's a very simple explanation. But but do you think that that what, what, what can you add to it? How would you how would you expand on that? You know, I have used the insurance analogy quite frequently because I think it, it is apropos conceptually to, to this, to, to the concept of um, looking at volatility as a tool in portfolio construction. You know, you hear people saying volatility is an asset class. Volatility is the only asset class. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to be quite that, you know, dogmatic or or. Um, outlandish about it, but um, you know, you own a car, you you have insurance. In most states, you're required to have insurance. Nobody likes to pay for it, but you, you're required to have it. Um, if you own a house and have a mortgage, you're required to have homeowners insurance. Nobody likes to pay it. <laughs> you hope you never have to collect, uh, but but it's a cost of doing business. Um, when people look at their investment portfolios, you know, there are ways that you can buy insurance. um, And uh, guess what? It it comes at a cost. And it's often the case that um, 
if an investment, if an advisor uh, wants a client to put a hedge in their portfolio, um, and and that hedge costs a certain amount of money, um, and the market just keeps rumbling higher as it has for most of you know the past ten years. Uh, the client every once in a while is going to say, well, why am I spending this money on this hedge you keep telling me I need? Uh, it hasn't worked out. It's cost me money. It's actually reduced the returns that I might have gotten without it. Um, so it's challenging when hedges cost money for advisors to keep them in the portfolio. And frankly, uh, the average advisor doesn't isn't really well equipped to size the hedges uh, and maybe dial them up or down depending on market conditions. And I think, you know, there there can be an opportunity in there uh, for advisors to really kind of fine tune what they do with hedges uh, to make the cost of them uh, really. Uh, better represent the opportunity that hedging can can bring when you when you actually need it because as we all know you know once the fire has started once the hurricane has landed uh you you can't buy insurance right so the 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 trick is that you know to get the insurance at a reasonable price and have it pay off does require that the insurance be put in place before it's necessary it's kind of odd. I've I've talked about this multiple times, but it's kind of odd that we insure everything in our lives except the pile of assets that pays for the insurance and everything else. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? Like the, the thing that is paying for the insurance, the thing that is paying for the assets, it's the only thing that we don't insure. And we're willing to accept slightly diminished returns on all of our other assets that we pay for insurance, but we don't, we're, we're not willing to accept it or it's not. And I, like you said, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, you and I both know that, and this isn't meant in a pejorative fashion at all, but we probably don't want the average financial advisor out there trying to actively hedge a portfolio, right? Not because they're not smart enough, just because they haven't been trained to do it. They haven't done it. Um, but I think that's kind of, you know, from our perspective, that's one of the benefits of having an experienced active manager uh, and somebody that's looking over, you know, looking over the the assets at a constant basis. And then also keeping in mind, and I'm sure you and Michael feel the same way, but I tell people all the time, I go, guys, once we get into retirement or we get close to it, the game is not about just optimizing gains, right? The game becomes about financing your lifestyle through any conditions imaginable, right? Um, because you get one retirement and it has to work 100% of the time. Um, so anyway, so moving, moving a little bit to, to a, a different direction and getting into the VIX um, and the things that I wanted to discuss with you, um, <laughs> I'll kind of tell you the role. I'll start by telling you the role that it's played with us. Um, assuming the VIX is low, anytime we see any type of potential threat that we think could you know, rock markets and rock client portfolios. We typically like to start with the VIX as one of our first hedging because you just get such good amplitude off of it. You know, uh, get a lot of bang for your buck if you get it right. Convexity. Yes, yes. Convexity. There's the word. And um, and then what we typically do, you know, I usually shoot for, you know, if, if 40 to me is a uh, when the VIX hits 40, it's a sign for me to pull back 
uh, every single time. Uh, maybe I keep some of the VIX on, but typically I start using those gains and rolling them into other types of hedges, you know, that don't have the same theta decay, don't have the same downside. Um, this year has been odd. Um, it has not been a very good hedge. It hasn't worked very well. And we threw in the towel a few months back um, and quit using it. it. It's been an odd year. I am not sure. I've said to the listeners before you came on that um, maybe there's another year where the S&P has been down 25%. Bonds have been down that much or more. NASDAQ down 35% at the worst. And the VIX never crossed 40 you may know that before. Have we, A, have we ever had a year like this where the VIX has stayed so relatively muted? Well, one of the challenges um, we have is, is the data set because uh, the VIX really only goes back to the early 90s. Right. And, you know, we haven't seen kind of the combination of things um interest rates rising with inflation um you know unsettled economic conditions around the globe uh, you know you'd have to go back particularly to to look at you know an inflationary environment with rising interest rates you really got to go back to the 70s maybe the early 80s um and you know you, you could construct something that you know might mimic the vix from data back there, uh, it's it's been done by some people, really looking at realized volatility um, as opposed to some measure of implied volatility. But so so we really haven't seen an environment like this. And what you said is absolutely true. This year, people have been very frustrated with their typical modes of hedging portfolios. Uh, to give two examples, the the SIBO uh, has an index that you can track that is 5% out of the money put purchases, right? So somebody might buy puts on the S&P 500 to hedge their portfolio. Uh, the flip side of that is somebody might buy VIX calls uh, as a way to hedge their portfolio. Both of those would, you know, in theory, respond favorably you know, to the market going down or VIX going up or both of those happening at the same time. Um, if you pull up a chart of how those two indices have performed this year, they really haven't helped you at all. Um, and, and in part, that's because the, the sell-off was not like the sell-off we had in March of 2020. You know, it, it, it started toward the end of last year, the beginning of this year, and it just kind of stair-stepped its way down. And, and so that's a relatively low volatility decline. You know, we have to remember that um, a, a line, a straight line that goes from lower left to upper right has zero volatility. A straight line that goes from upper left to lower right, right? Stock market goes down in a straight line. That's no volatility. Mm -hmm. You know, and and people forget that the, the, the math is important. Um, now, typically, when the market goes down, it doesn't go. It, it goes down in in jerks and and flops uh, and the moves tend to be exaggerated and larger and therefore more volatile. Um, but this year was a little disappointing in that regard for most people. And. 
and coming into the year, um, the VIX was a little more elevated than it has been in some prior periods where the market started to sell off. So we started to sell off from a somewhat higher VIX level. Um, and so that already took into account some potential for greater volatility. But, you know, so, so yeah, that the, the long and the short of it is that the traditional ways that people go about hedging their portfolios have not performed well this year. That's been very frustrating for a lot of people uh, who have been looking for ways to uh, perhaps mitigate some of the drawdown. Um, and, you know, frankly, it has put a lot more attention on the other way that, you know, people can expand their horizons and diversify their portfolios, which is, you know, looking at so-called alternative investments. Um, and, you know, it's it's not just stocks and bonds. And uh, the, the great thing about, you know, our industry is we've got people out there who are inventing new things every day and offering them up uh, for inclusion in portfolios. And certainly that's something uh, that we've paid attention to for quite a while. Um, but, you know, this year, um, finding some other places to, to hide uh, has been very fruitful, whether that's, you know, the dollar, yeah. uh, which, you know, for a good chunk of the year was doing very well. Uh, interest rate hedging, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone that interest rates were going to go up this year. Um, once Powell got confirmed. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I, I think the ability to think more broadly and the, the ability to look beyond, you know, what may have worked in the past. I mean, obviously, you, you look to things that have rewarded you in the past and you want to keep those things working in your portfolio. Um, but there may come points in time like we've had this year where, you need to cast your net a little more broadly. Yeah. So would it be fair to say that the, the, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the underperformance, I guess that's not the right word, but the, the relative muted nature of the VIX this year, has it not been a surprise to you? Has it, has it been, have you been, or, or, or like you said, have you been watching the action and not been surprised by what you've seen in the VIX? I've been watching the action and, and not been terribly surprised. Um, because again, um, well, and, and, and I'll say two things. Um, you know, again, uh, the, the VIX tends to have a negative correlation with the S and P, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody expects that to be a one-to-one. -one. If the S and P is up, the VIX is down. Um, but you know, again, if the VIX gets to a level, and and you've got a shorthand rule of 16 that we use, right? So if the VIX is 32. Um, that implies the potential for a 2% daily move in the S&P 500. And, and that's a pretty big move on a daily basis. So, you know, if, if VIX was, and we've had VIX at 32 a number of times this year, but even a VIX of 20 implies more than a 1% daily move in the S&P 500. And, you know, most of the daily moves we've had this year, you know, have been in that one to two percent range. Yeah. Um, and 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 whether they're up for a week and then down for a week, you know, the VIX stops caring after a while as long as they're within a range. Um, and so the 
the the correlation hasn't been quite as strong as people would like it to be. Um, you know, there have been opportunities. You know, the same way there have been opportunities to for for people who have the capacity to be long and short. There have been opportunities for people to be both long and short the stock market. There have been opportunities this year to be long or short uh, VIX futures in one form or another and and eke out a little bit of money. So uh, it hasn't been a, a complete desert for people in the volatility space. Uh, but I think it's been frustrating for the average investor and the average advisor. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> I know of a couple uh, of a couple investors uh, that run volatility only portfolios and volatility only funds that have actually shut down this year, um, just just because of that. You know, um, portfolios are getting smacked, and clients are then sitting there going, "Well, this isn't working, right? The the the, the brakes that we've put on this car aren't functioning correctly," and and. Uh, <laughs> And and that kind of that kind of concerns me because I, I sit there and I think you know you I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but when you see funds like that shutting down and people getting frustrated, it usually means that there's an event coming, uh, right? <laughs> Did that? That's right. It's probably right around the time you're going to need it. Um, now now w- we also have some really interesting dynamics that I want to run by you because um, due to the this this might be a bit hyperbolic, but due to the degenerate nature of some of the investors that we have in markets with us today, uh, from my understanding, and again, I'll yield to you. I know you're watching this stuff closer than I am, but um, it's it, it, from what I'm seeing, the demand for short dated options has remained at historic levels. And for the listeners out there, and you can add more color to this to Jim, but when you get short dated options that have days left or a week or two left on them, um, first of all, you got to understand that something like what, 92 to 95% of all options expire worthless, something like that. Um, and when you're buying short dated options, you can imagine that over time you will have even a higher rate of failure. And that is the equivalent of gambling. And the reason they like to do that is because if something moves the way they think, and if you've got an option that's only got five days or 10 days left on it, you're going to get that really cheap because the chances of that option hitting its levels, its strike, is over a really short period of time are much more rare. Um, from your point of view, how has that appetite for these degenerate-type option bets, how has that played into the VIX at all, or, or has it? Is, is, that, is that kind of... Is that one of those things floating around out there that's an excuse, or has that has that actually had an impact on the VIX this year? So, yeah, it's an interesting topic and one that's um, getting a lot of attention in the, you know, on the interwebs. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, and I've been trying to pay attention. There's been quite a bit of information coming out from various sources. Um, and it's not all degenerate gamblers, um, but if you go back, let's let's put it in a little bit of perspective. You know, if you go back, I don't know, two, three, four years, you know, you had weekly option expirations, you had monthly op- uh, option expirations, and um, you know, a 30-day uh, time to expiration was kind of you know middle of the road. And, and that's what the VIX measures is a 30-day measure of S&P volatility. 
Um, so, you know, that measure had some import. Uh, weekly options became, you know, more popular. Uh, uh, more daily options were introduced. You know, and at this point in time, you know, I think we've got SPX options that expire every day. Yeah. So, you know, clearly there's some attraction to, uh, you know, the, the Robin Hood Wall Street bets crowd uh, to, to wake up in the morning and say, let's go trade some zero DTE options. Uh, because to your point, if there's volatility in the marketplace or if there's volatility in the underlying of any of those zero DTE options, uh, you know, today's Friday. We've got weekly options expiring, daily options expiring. Let's go. Um, and whether you're buying those options because you think, you know, it's going to go one direction or the other or selling those options because there's no time left, but there's still premium to collect. Um, it's going to it's going to attract some kind of crowd. Uh, the reality is that it, it has a. a Acquired not only a DGEN crowd, but an institutional crowd. Really? Because institu institutions who use options for hedging purposes, for overlay purposes, uh, income generation. You know, if, if you're an institution and, you know, 10 years ago you started selling vol uh, as a way to uh, increase income in your portfolio, you know, that could be covered calls. It could be, you know, selling puts. It could be any number of, of approaches. Um, you know, now you've got a whole lot of tenor to work with. So I might be selling six month options. I might be, you know, selling two day options. I might be, uh, doing calendars, I might be doing all kinds of, you know, interesting option structures. And I am not the options expert, um, but it's very clear from people I talk to and listen to that, you know, institutions have looked at this as an opportunity to fine tune some of their uh, some of their derivative strategies um, because, you know, these are very liquid Underlyings typically, it's you know the S and P 500. There's no more liquid underlying. And um, gee, if if my goal is to create a program to to look for volatility, that you know, as you say, if it's going to expire worthless, and and I can sell it for ten cents, and I can do that a whole every day. <laughs> <laughs> on a relatively large scale, uh, maybe 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 I should do that. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a uh, a clip from the CBOE's risk management conference that was held. I want to say it was last month. I, I was not there because it was held in Reykjavik, Iceland. Um, but one of the uh, speakers there, one of the panelists there was commenting exactly on this, that institutions are looking at um, these, the, the expanded range of option tenor as an opportunity to be more precise with their strategies. Um, 
and and you know maybe take the pressure off of what used to be you know we have monthly expirations we're going to put all of our chips on this one expiration and you know hope hope that works out and now they're saying we can spread that out so if we have a budget of you know whatever jillions of dollars it is that that we're putting into this option strategy uh, we're now spreading that across a broad range of expiration dates. Um, and so I think, you know, it's a combination of the Robin Hood Wall Street bets crowd, uh, DGEN, YOLOs, and, you know, institutional players, hedge fund players, anybody who, you know, has a derivative strategy taking advantage of a broader range of options available. In some ways, now obviously it's different and it's, and it's not it, – it, well, I'll just ask you, is it is it reminiscent in any way of what we saw in in 2017 and 2018? Um, meaning, obviously, there was that was probably more retail money at that point because they were all loaded up on those short VIX ETFs. But but is <laughs> is that is is there any similarity between what we're seeing in that? I mean, obviously, different vehicles, but but it, it, is there any similarity there? I I I. <sighs> I don't have uh, visibility uh, into sort of the, the, the granularity of who's buying and selling what where. Um, and oh, by the way, it's it's really hard to have comprehensive visibility into any of these derivative markets. Um, there are a lot of people out there trying, and there's some some improving resources. Um, but 2017, I remember vividly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were seeing, you know, VIX levels that we'd never seen before. You know, the, the complacency in the market, uh, the steady upward grind of the S&P and the NASDAQ and everything else. Um, you know, talk about that lower left to upper right in a straight line. Um, and, and that really just ground VIX into the into the basement um, until it was time for a change, right. um, you know, which which in that particular circumstance was kind of a confluence of events that, you know, don't exist today. We don't have the massive short volatility exposure uh, in a couple of products that existed going into January of 2018. Um, you know, so that probably doesn't happen again for at least for a long time. Um, so I'm, I'm not concerned that, you know, we've got some buildup of stuff going on. And remember that whenever these short-dated options expire, um, you know, somebody's got to move the boat. Somebody's got to say, okay, let's redeploy that capital. So at least, you know, it's it's sort of like, think of it as a bond ladder, right? If if what you're doing is is building a portfolio of options from zero DTE out to 30 days or 60 days or however long you might express, you know, a view, um, you're just kind of, uh, once the first bond Matures, you take that money and you put it at the back end of the ladder. So, um, you know, I think there's probably more turnover 
and less accumulation. You know, it would be if 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 you could identify that there was a big ton of accumulation somewhere out there, uh, th- that might be cause for concern. That's certainly what was cause for concern in January of 2018. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to get into the speculation side of things. Uh, that's always fun. Uh, but for, yeah, full full disclosures, purely speculative on my part. But like I was saying earlier, when when I see situations like this. And I see people throwing in the towel on VIX. And I see very smart, talented guys uh, with good track records uh, effectively getting blown out. Um, It makes me think, look, I don't know how close we are, but it makes me sit there and think to myself, okay, the chances are probably pretty good that exactly what everybody's throwing in the towel on is probably going to come in handy at some point in the relatively not too distant future. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And do you think do you think that, for instance, we will get through this cycle without some real sportiness coming from the VIX? Um, do, do, you know, how do you how are you looking at it? Is it something that you're just still trading short long? Um, and do you think that it it is going to pay at some point in the cycle? Um. I, I certainly think that um, that there are approaches that one might take that uh, can result in a payoff. Um, you know, is it going to be a uh, February 2018 payoff? Is it going to be a December of 2018 payoff? Is it going to be a March of 2020 payoff? Um, I never thought March 2020 could happen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Vic's, Vic's getting up into the 80s. Um, but I don't see any reason why, you know, we're going to rewrite history and, and modify all human behavior anytime soon. And, you know, the my belief is that as long as humans are involved in the market, there, there will be opportunities to, uh, as Jim O'Shaughnessy has said more than once, arbitrage human behavior Uh, and so I try not to take um, a a view that that goes out more than a month or two yeah I mean I, I can look at how my different models are positioned and I can say, this is interesting. You know, the short-term models are expressing this, and the longer-term models are expressing that. Um, and sometimes they're, they're uh, more or less consistent, and sometimes they're not. And, and I find that interesting because, you know, if, if they're arguing with each other, then, you know, who's going to win the argument? Um, I don't know, but that might result in a little bit of fireworks. Um, I think that uh, there's a decent chance, given uh, the data and where the yield curves are and uh, the, the, the way earnings seem to be coming out, there's a decent chance that, you know, we've got some kind of recession coming. And um, historically, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the Fed pivot. Historically, when the Fed pivots, uh, it is not the start of the next bull move. Right. Now, you know, that might be different this time. 
I, I am a big believer that price of whatever instrument you're looking at is, is all that really matters, you know. Uh, I was a diehard value investor when I started my career, and I still think that's a great way for people to deploy their money if they're patient and have high risk tolerance. Um, but you can be convinced that a stock is worth three times what the market's trading, um, but the market doesn't have to care what you think. And and so, you know, I pay a lot of attention to price, uh, whether it be stocks or bonds or volatility instruments. And, um, you know, I, I don't express a strong opinion that contradicts what the price is telling me. Yeah, as, as my colleague says, Marcos Bueno, he says, there, there's, a, there's a lot of information in the price, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I've learned that, too, starting off as a, you know, looking down my nose at any type of technical analysis or any type of momentum strategies. Um, I've come full circle on that. I think there's room for both approaches inside of a portfolio for a lot of the reasons that, that you just illuminated. Um, so, so moving over to a, a little bit off of the VIX, but getting into a little bit of broader discussion, because I know that it's not just the VIX you're watching, right? There's a lot of other things and you're a student of markets as well. Um, I will tell you that I, that I find this debate, um, recession, no recession. I find it somewhat amusing. Um, and and I'll tee this up to, I want to hear what your thoughts are as well. Obviously we all know that anything can happen, right? Um, but when I look at the volatility of rates, when I look at the magnitude of rate moves that have occurred, when I look at how long the market has been at 0% rates, and I think that's something that the central banks clearly do not pay attention to, at least publicly. They don't acknowledge it. But my own belief is that it's not just the level that rates go to, but it's how long they stay there, right? Because the longer a rate stays somewhere, the more everything is going to be geared toward that rate. And I look at that. I look at the drawdown of stimulus. And I think kind of people have forgotten what recession means, meaning a recession is just declining growth. And if, you know, all the stimulus wears off and you jack rates and a recession could be just us receding back to consumer spending levels and asset levels that we saw more in like 2019, right? It doesn't have to be this horrific end of the world event. I look at the world today and I look at the economic backdrop and I look at rates and the factors that we've discussed. And it's just very hard for me to imagine that it, we at least do not recede back to levels that were more reminiscent of 2019, um, right? Because all of the factors that created those last two years, they haven't just gone away. They've been reversed. What are your thoughts on the broader market? <laughs> and, 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 and again, not, we're not putting on our extrapolation hats and trying, you know, because that's a, we both know that's a fool's errand. But, but just when I look at this, you know, the, again, I, for 15 years, the mantra was don't fight the Fed. And I hear so many of that crowd advocating to fight the Fed now, where I'm like, Oh, well, hold on a second. I'm, I'm with you. Don't fight the Fed. Why are you doing it now? Well, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm the, I'm the world's worst macro guy. <laughs> Let me start there. Um, because I've never been able to build an investment thesis uh, off of a set of macro data, macro information that, that satisfied 
my needs um, or the needs of my clients. Um, because I've seen so many macro guys, and and first of all, you only hear about the ones that got it right. Right, right. <laughs> and second, um, you know, there have been any number of macro trades that have worked out that, you know, were wrong for extended periods of time. Right. Um, and, and worked only to the extent that they had patient capital behind them. Um, and so I just don't feel uh, that I have the whether it's the intellect or the schooling or whatever it is. Uh, I, I'm just not somebody who's going to make a macro call and and put client capital behind it and hope it works out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I look at this current set of circumstances and I listen to macro observers uh, and, and people who have a good sense of history you know some of us were alive the last time we had inflation <laughs> a lot of people sitting in chairs managing money weren't even alive right uh, and so it's it's everybody has this little this little snapshot of Paul Volcker breaking inflation um, and and starting this great new bull market for both equities and bonds. Um, people need to go back and, and really work on that history a little bit because there were several huge fits and starts in that process. Several uh, Fed chairs who came and went uh, before Volcker, quote unquote, you know, fixed things. Um, and so I think there's a decent chance that history will repeat itself. Um, the circumstances, you know, are different in any number of ways. That's all fine. But humans are still humans. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, as much as Powell wants to be, you know, seen as the Volcker of his era, you know, he might be the William McChesney Martin. He might be the Arthur Burns. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we might go through a phase where the Fed does whatever they think they need to do. And it proves to be less than what's necessary. Uh, you know, the Fed could pivot. We could see inflation catch fire again, uh, requiring the Fed to reverse its pivot. Um, I, I have no idea what's going to happen. Um to the extent that, that that kind of scenario plays out where we've got this stop-start circumstance of multiple bouts of inflation, um, what I'm highly confident about is that there's going to be uh, very significant volatility in markets, both bonds and stocks. I think that um, a, a, some sort of tactical approach uh, will be necessary to survive. Um, there will be some great opportunities on both sides of the spectrum. Um, so short sellers will have the chance to make money. Uh, longs will have the chance to make money. Volatility traders will have the chance to make money. I, I do think that um, some nimbleness will probably prove to be 
um, a, a strong attribute. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I feel like we've been in a food fight here uh, <laughs> this year, and I don't see any signs of it abating. Um, and, and getting a little bit into – I'm with you because if you understand the history, there are so many false dawns uh, in the inflation fight, right? Um, I, I Again, I, as, a, as a student of human behavior, I, I would expect this time to be no different. As a matter of fact, we were telling our clients – and we've been telling them that, look, this isn't going to be a one-shot, done, silver bullet type approach. There will probably be fits and starts. And I, for one, expect inflation to stay somewhat elevated uh, going forward, you know, elevated compared to where we've been in the last 15 years. Um, and how elevated, who knows, right? I don't. I, I personally don't see, you know, the, the inflation rates of the 70s. Now, there are those that would sit there and make the argument, well, we calculate inflation differently and all that. I, I just I have a hard time seeing, you know, 14, 15 percent inflation, not saying it's not possible. Um, but I, I, I do. You know, I think it's going to be that whole fits and starts approach. And like you said, I, I think tactical is going to be the key. A lot of index guys don't want to hear that. Right. Um, I just I have a hard time imagining it being as simple as it's been the last 15 years um, as it relates to rates. One thing I've really been trying to look at, Jim, is what, what really the impact that is going to be on the economy and how big of a wet blanket that really is. I'm of the belief that um, – and it's odd for me because I was pounding the table and critiquing the Fed about not raising rates for a long time. I, I mean I, I don't think we should have been on the zero bound past 2013 and possibly even earlier than that. Um, Having that said, having said that, I also look at it today, though, and I again, I could be completely wrong. I think they've overdone it to the I think they've overdone it to the other side now. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? And, 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 and I would love for you to disagree with me because I'm, I'm really I'm really trying to work through it mathematically and understand what's going on. I just don't understand how in the space of 18 months you go from zero percent for 15 years to four to five on the FFR. I I just can't get through my head how that is not going to be horrifically disruptive and potentially chaotic as it relates to so much debt out there. I mean, you, you, you know, commercial real estate, there's so many places that it's just going to absolutely hamstring. Do you think they've overshot to the high side? That would require me to have broad knowledge of the economic financial implications of Federal Reserve interest rates that that I just don't possess. Um, what I see are incredibly smart, well-educated, well-informed people taking opposite sides on this argument. And when I see that, I kind of scratch my head and say, I'm in deep trouble <laughs> because both of these people are way smarter than I am. And they've been studying this stuff their entire lives. And they're drawing completely opposite conclusions from theoretically the same pile of information. Um, so, wow. Yeah. Um, you know, once again, I kind of hunker down and say, um, I, I need to be prepared for um, either outcome. Uh, I, I need to 
not be wedded to a view that it's going to play out this way. Um, and I better broadly be observing, you know, how all of this is expressing itself uh, across asset classes, within asset classes, uh, you know, what's happening with bond prices, uh, what's happening with high yield market credit. You know, are we seeing strains in the credit markets? Um, uh, what's at the top of the list when I rank the sectors, you know, have consumer discretionary and tech uh, maintained their lead or have they fallen back in favor of defensive sectors, you know, like staples and utilities and industrials, um, you know, and, and that's really what I fall back on to begin to make investment decisions because to the extent that the market is voting to move capital to different sectors, then, you know, I'm probably going to follow the flows. Uh, my models are certainly going to tell me to follow the flows. Um, and, and it may be a circumstance where, um, you know, I, I have, one portfolio model that's relatively slow moving and owned the queues forever. And just, you know, in the last year, uh, we've exited the queues and uh, we've, we've put some, uh, you know, commodity related, some dollars, some um, trend following, uh, pieces in that portfolio, you know, that, that weren't getting any love two years ago, um, but have, are, are emerging as, you know, new leaders. Mm -hmm. Is that going to last for five years? I have no idea, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons I really appreciate, uh, you know, a, a more quantitative approach to investing because I, I convinced myself a long time ago, you know, that I'm not smart enough to go toe to toe with George Soros and yeah. Druckenmiller on, you know, on, on deciphering the macro tea leaves and, you know, figuring out where the next big bet's going to be. Yeah, it's 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 probably anathema to a lot of retail investors or new investors. But I'm, I'm reminded of the mantra. And again, it, it sounds odd. Uh, but when you get into environments, especially, and I, I, and, and I tend to lean this way most of the time anyway, unless, you know, there, there's certain circumstances where, you know, I think the tea leaves line up and correspond with fundamental value and, mm -hmm. and it doesn't happen very often, but you sit there and go, okay, I want in on this. Right. Um, the rest of the time, and I've learned this via pain throughout my career is that rather than trying to predict where it's going. Position yourself to be able to re react where it goes, right? Right. So you can pivot and go with it because you play that predictive game and it's only a matter of time until you're going to get smacked. Um, you know, and I, I don't I don't really see, you know, I don't I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Right. Um, but we all go into it thinking, OK, my job is to predict where it's going. Well, good luck with that. Right. Well, and you know, look, we're we're all implicitly making predictions you know, by whatever we do, right? Right. Uh, whatever you put in your client's portfolio, you know, you're implicitly predicting that that's going to be 
the among the better places to be over time. Uh, I think the 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 the, di- the dimension of that that sometimes is not doesn't get the the right amount of attention is what's your time frame? You know, how willing are you to change your mind uh, as as the facts change? Uh, because again, I've seen people who can be very dogmatic. You know, I'm right, and this is what's going to happen, uh, and you know, here's why, and I've studied this, and yada yada yada. Um, um, quick aside: years ago, when Netflix was, you know, on in one of its on fire stages, and there was a prominent short seller who was pounding the table that Netflix was a screaming short. And the chart just kept going straight up. And he finally got, you know, taken out. And, you know, within months, Netflix rolled over and died. <laughs> and yeah. the, the point I made to him when he was screaming about the short was, look at the chart. Why are yeah. you pressing your bet against that chart? You know, you may have every fundamental on your side, but investor sentiment is going to take you out. And so, you know, it's one thing to be to have conviction about a point of view. But if that conviction is uh, against the tide of the market, you you might want to just dial it back a little bit um, and and hold that thought and, and let the market tell you when it's time to press the bet. Or, or is, and I'm not sure if Mark Cahotis was the one that coined this phrase, but but I died laughing when I heard it, which was, instead of trying to climb the tree and wrestle the cheetah out of it, wait till it comes down on its own and then shoot it in the back, right? <laughs> uh, and and when I heard that, it really changed the way that I thought about things because again, there was still that novice part of me that thought, no, I need to be the hero and pick the top of this thing. Right. And then you realize, well, if I'm shorting a stock, the max gain I have, regardless at any level I short it is a hundred percent, right? Right. So wait till it breaks and then jump on its back. Right. Um, anyway, so in closing here, I've soaked up enough of your time and you've been more than gracious enough to do it, but, uh, but I always like to flip it back to you. What are some of the intriguing things that have caught your eye that you're watching right now? I mean, I know you're always keeping an eye on volatility, but kind of take us into Jim's world a little bit and the things that are intriguing to you. You may not have an opinion one way or the other, but what are the things that are catching your eye that you're watching closely at this time? Well, I would say, um, you know, vo- volatility is always something that I'm keeping a close eye on. What, the, the other thing that 2022 has kind of framed is um, you, you do need to maintain flexibility in your approach uh, to asset allocation, particularly in times like this. That This is no time to hide under a rock and pretend that 60-40 or a you know strategic asset allocation buy and hold low cost is is going to see you through to the other side of whatever we're going through. Um, you know time frames are are smaller right now in in my view than they were you know two or three years ago, sort of from 2009 to <laughs> to, to, to through 2019. Um, and, and so I think, you know, people need to, as as uh, a friend of mine says, you know, ex-military buddy, uh, keep your head on a swivel. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> because, you, you know, if, if you don't, you're going to be surprised, and the surprise is probably going to be a negative one. Yeah, boy, isn't that the truth. All righty, sir. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. And if people want to follow you, uh, we can do it on Twitter. And it's it's uh, Vixologist, right? It's at, at Vixologist. Vixologist. Yes. V-I-X. How do we spell that? I don't want to. V-I-X-O-L-O-G-I-S-T. It's like okay. it's like, you know, if, if you're a cock, if you're a bartender, you're a mixologist. There you go. A and so I make, I make I make cocktails out of volatility. <laughs> well, I, I see if I went into a bar and they had a volatility cocktail, that's all I'd order. <laughs> I, that, that would be it. And then also they can visit your guys' website. I, I've, I've said on the show before, uh, obviously one of the reasons we do the radio show is for marketing. So we get clients, but I also know that we're not right for everybody. And you guys are another shop where I would say, look, Guys, these are the advantages of active management. This is what, you know, if people want to check you out, they can go to trosoadvisors.com, correct? That's Yes. And you and, and you and Michael are there. Um, are you guys the two main portfolio managers? Do you, do you have other people there as well? There are, there are Michael really is is uh, specifically on the asset management side because uh, he does not have direct clients. Um, he runs funds and and recruits advisors to uh, invest in his funds. Um, where I'm sort of the flip side, I run a private client business um, and manage portfolios for individual clients, using you know in part some of the strategies that I've developed over time. Got it. All righty, sir. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, have a wonderful Have a wonderful holiday season. Merry Christmas to you and yours. And um, hopefully, we'll get you on here in the next year and uh, check back in and see how things are in the in volatility land. Anytime. All right, you guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, another great interview. As always, we'll be back next week. Got another one lined up for next week. You're not going to want to miss it. Until then, have a great weekend. Go Hawks, and we'll see you next week. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.